host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Professor Terence Deacon. Terence is a professor of biological anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley, where he's been for many years, and his research has combined human evolutionary biology and neuroscience with the aim of investigating the evolution of human cognition. Terence is someone I spoke to on episode 20 of the podcast that was largely about his book, The Symbolic Species, which is focused on the coevolution of language and the brain. It's all about how the evolution of both symbolic cognition and our language faculties go hand in hand. And it's sort of a, a very fascinating, very dense book about the subject of language evolution. The present conversation largely discusses topics from another book that he has called Incomplete Nature, How Mind Emerged from Matter. And it's all about Terence's ideas and framework for thinking about how things like the mind and consciousness evolved and emerge from uh, the material substrates of the brain. Uh, but it goes way deeper than that. He talks about the origin of life, the origin of purpose-driven or teleological systems, systems which seem to have an end towards which they are aimed at. It is all about uh, aboutness in the universe and the difference between things that are about something versus things that merely exist, like inanimate matter. And he sort of goes through uh, his ideas around how to think about this. And it's super fascinating, but also really difficult to get through. I had to read the book a couple of times, in part because Terence has to come up with uh, a lot of new language and terms to even you know help us think about some of these topics. But if you're interested in the origins of the mind, the origins of consciousness and sentience, if you're interested in the origins of life, all of those topics are connected within a really fascinating framework, which Terence sets up in his book, Incomplete Nature. And so we talked for two and a half hours about all of those topics. There's a lot that I didn't get a chance to ask Terrence about due to time constraints, but I hope you really like the podcast. I did my best to make it flow and, and be as concrete and easily digestible as possible, but uh, a lot of the topics are a bit esoteric and abstract, so uh, I hope you can follow along. As always, if you enjoy the content on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you are listening or watching the podcast. If you check out the links in the episode description, you can help out the podcast and learn more through two different ways. One is to go to my mindandmatter.substack.com link. You'll find the free weekly newsletter for Mind and Matter, which you can sign up for, as well as some of my long-form writing, which integrates a lot of the information across episodes of the podcast. You'll also find a link for how you can support the podcast by purchasing some interesting products that I really like through some of our affiliates or by subscribing to become a paid supporter of the platform. And with that, here's my conversation with Terrence Deacon. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D 
is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And uh, just for people who don't know, what uh, what do you do? What what are you known for? And what's your career been sort of focused on? <laughs> so I'm uh, officially titled as a biological anthropologist. My background is split fairly evenly between neuroscience and human evolution. Uh, so, for example, uh, I've spent my graduate career studying what's unique about the human brain that is associated with our linguistic capacity, how the anatomy of the human brain differs from the humanity, uh, the, the anatomy of uh, chimpanzee brains and related brains, and how it might be related to language. Uh, that's an evolution question. I have taught that taught evolution and human evolution uh, really since the early 1980s. And uh, second of all, I've spent a good deal of time doing bench laboratory research uh, focused, um, in fact, on development of the nervous system, in part because to understand how nervous systems have evolved, you need to understand the mechanisms by which nervous systems get produced and changed in structure. So all through the 1990s, for example, I was involved in uh, procedures involving neuro fetal neural transplantation, taking neurons from one species brain from an embryo species brain, the embryo brain uh, from one species and implanting it in another brain of a different species, uh, which allowed us to look at both how the neurons talk to each other from two different species uh, and how they mature. That is putting in embryonic neurons, uh, you can actually see um, how they mature in a different brain. So to look at how brains that have been separated, we were, so much of our work was involving, involving rats as hosts and pigs as donors, interestingly enough. Uh, it actually was directed also as a major support towards uh, treatment using cell, cell transplantation treatments for Parkinson's disease and for Huntington's disease. Uh, and in fact, uh, it led to some uh, clinical trials uh, and I think it will become eventually the major approach uh, using stem cells uh, directed uh, developed from one's own body, so to speak. Uh, since coming here to California, uh, that was all done out in the Boston area at Harvard and Harvard Medical School. And since coming to California, um, although I've continued my work looking at brain evolution, uh, and how it changes. Much of my work has also become much more theoretical in the sense that I've become much more interested in uh, the uniqueness of the evolutionary process that can produce things like information processing uh, and how that's unusual. As a result, Incomplete Nature, the book I wrote uh, the middle of, of this last few decades, uh, was mostly focused on how it is that material processes, chemistry and physics as we know it, uh, can come to produce information processes, processes that can be about other things, 
Uh, brains are about other things. Bodies are evolved to be about their worlds. Uh, even the simplest organisms like bacteria. Um, uh, basically, the information that they produce and transmit from generation to generation uh, is carrying information about how to survive. Uh, there is no aboutness in the chemical, physical world without life. And so it was a real, it's a deep conundrum, both in philosophy, but also in uh, natural science as to how this comes about. And I tried to take a natural science approach to this, to understand how it is uh, that molecular processes can become, in a sense, how molecules can become about something else. Yeah, and one of the things that's really interesting uh, is of course the difference between life and non-life. So brains and bodies can be about other things and it's very they have very different characteristics from the non-living world. And at one level, it's all very intuitive. Like, you know, even a child can sort of look out into the world and sort of immediately recognize that the living things are sort of fundamentally different from non-living things. And yet it's really hard to talk about this and formalize exactly what is different and, and why this is. And uh, you may or may not remember, but one of the things that you said uh, at the last uh, at the last little bit of our first podcast discussion was that you thought that the next century was going to be all about reintegrating purpose, value, and teleology back into the sciences. And I'll let you define teleology, but of course, this is indirectedness. It's like the 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 idea that you know when you look at an animal walking around, it looks like it's doing something for a reason that has a a goal in mind. And so what exactly is tel teleology, and why did that become a focus of your attention? Well, it became a focus of my attention in part because it's really behind not just mind and our ability to have purpose and direction and goals, as you say, but even the simplest living process is a process that is aimed at something. It's trying to accomplish something, if nothing else, just to keep itself going. Uh, the first law of thermodynamics says that matter and energy can't be created or destroyed. They can be intertransferred from one to the other, like in nuclear processes, but mass, energy, whatever we want to call that substrate of the world, um, is basically conserved. The total amount of it stays the same. On the other hand, uh, information can be created or destroyed. The fact that living things can be born and die, um, that there can be extinction of all life, uh, or that they, there can be the birth of life on some other planet or like on the Earth. Um, this is telling us that this is something different than just matter and energy. Uh, and information, although we have a way of thinking about information just as pattern, pattern is everywhere in the natural world. It's everywhere in stars and planets and galaxies uh, in geometry and geology. Uh, but patterns about other patterns are a different matter. How does something become about something? And ultimately, I think the story of teleology, the very essence of teleology, is this thing that we might use a sort of simple term, aboutness. How does aboutness come into the world? And aboutness has one thing that also other kinds of patterns, pattern relationships don't have. And that is there's value. There's what we sometimes call normativity. There are there are um, true representational relationships and false representational relationships. In the world of chemistry and physics, there are no good or bad physical processes. There are no good or bad chemical processes. But when life comes into play, there's, there can be good chemistry and bad chemistry. There can be things that are supportive and things that are not. These are normative features. These have value. 
So value is something that, of course, is essential to human life and essential to how we conceive of the world and ourselves. Um, but it comes into being. It emerges out of a world where there wasn't value. Aboutness emerges in a world where there wasn't aboutness before this. Uh, and that's a philosophical mystery, but it's also a physical process. It did happen. This transition happened. So as a matter of fact, there must be a story to be told about how that happens, how value and aboutness and purpose come into the world that didn't exist before them. Hmm. Yeah, I've never thought of it quite that way. So the laws of physics tell us that matter slash energy can't be created or destroyed. It can only be transformed into a different kind of matter or energy or different form. But that's not true, you're saying, of information. It can be created or destroyed. Life can arise from non-life and it can all go away. And in fact, one of the things that, that our whole bodies are about is maintaining something that should, given the second law of thermodynamics, should spontaneously decay, should spontaneously break down. Um, and yet everything about life is, to some extent, using the second law of thermodynamics to keep it from having that final effect. Um, and that's a remarkable thing. So it basically says that the origins of life is this weird, you might say, twist of the second law of thermodynamics against itself. Uh, and one of the things I find really exciting about the very concept of the origins of life, because it's the origins of all these things, um, it's also, it had to occur very simply. It couldn't be very complicated because it's doesn't have anybody designing it. It has to be something that could have happened by chance, that could have happened by things just happening together. And yet this simple process had to produce something that was radically inversing the logic of causality in the universe. That is, the second law of thermodynamics is being overcome, not for a short period of time, but on Earth, it's been overcome for 3.8 billion years. Um, this is a remarkable phenomenon since the second law of thermodynamics says that everything of that kind of organization should break down pretty fast. So something unusual happened. This, and it's remarkable that this very unusual transition in the world happened in a very, very simple form. So it must be understandable. And it happened uh, at least once uh, that we that we can tell. And, you know, maybe we'll get into this later, you know, what the difference between life and non-life is, but it has something to do with this sort of weird inversion with respect to uh, the general physical tendency for disorder to increase over time. Uh, a living system should break down, and yet somehow it's organized in a way that prevents it from doing so. Um, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about things in the negative, meaning uh, uh, what things are not. And, and you point out that end-directed uh, processes develop towards something they currently are not. So what is the significance of this sort of negative quality, the absence of something which directs life towards an end that it's not currently at? Well, what it tells us, interestingly enough, is that when we think about form or order, we're actually thinking about if we reverse our thinking, we're thinking about chaotic or disordered things um, in a sense, being limited, that all the possible ways things could organize themselves, be ordered, um, are not being realized. That is, uh, one of the things about order, about form, 
is that it's not something that pre-exists. Plato had this idea, for example, that there were ideal forms and that somehow they influenced the physical world in a not quite perfect way. Um, but in a real sense, what we're really talking about is how things become less than chaotic. Um, when things become more ordered, we're just saying that they're less than chaotic. Not all degrees of freedom are being realized. And as things become more ordered, um, just the uh, just the opposite happens. We subtract off degrees of freedom. Another way to think about it, think about a machine. A machine is made up of a bunch of parts. Um, and when they link up with each other and influence each other, um, what do they do? Well, they all um, engage in certain kinds of movements, but not others. When a machine is assembled, um, it is assembled so that only certain changes can take place. And if that's true and it's maintained, that machine will produce a function, a purpose. We might build it for that purpose. Now, the building of it was imposed. Um, the purpose is not the machine just keep running. It's what the machine produces as a consequence. It's not the machine itself. Um, however, if it's held together by screws and bolts, if we loosen a few of them and we allow some degrees of freedom of movement to increase, it stops functioning. So one of the interesting things about the very nature of function, even as we think about it in terms of machines, and of course it's going to get more complex with organisms, but even in terms of machines, we recognize that function is the result of the constraint on what the parts are doing. The function, if the constraints are released and relaxed, it'll stop functioning. Now, with respect to life, it's a much more interesting and complicated problem. Why? Because the design is internal, it designs itself to some extent. Um, and its function, its purpose, is the maintenance of that design, preserving it against the tendency that it will spontaneously break down. Under those circumstances, it's still the constraints. It's still what it doesn't do. When my body finally dies, um, what's going to happen is the constraints on the possible chemistry are going to relax. And a lot of chemistry that's being prevented right now, thank goodness, um, will start to take place and very rapidly break down the systems. All the constrained chemistry will be gone. So to some extent, um, death is a chemical increase in freedom. And my life is a constraint, something negative, something absent, something that's not allowed to happen, something that's prevented. So in a sense, life is about prevention of entropy, about prevention of coming to an end. Uh, and, and that's what makes it interesting. That's why it's negative. But notice that that's also what links it to this notion of aboutness. Things are about what they're not. Again, about an absence. And typically, it, they're about some constrained result, about some form. Uh, and a form is a constrained system. It's something that not all possibilities are there. And when we, you know, start thinking about constraint and um, the the development of constraints that amount to living forms, um, think about like the origin of cellular life and the fact that all life is 
contained in these sort of literal containers um, that have you know particular constraints they impose on you know the the chemical soup that they contain. You know, you, you talk about you know. So the question is really, how does on the origin of life side, how does something living or quasi living come from something that's non living? How's that even possible? And you know, one of the things here that you talk about in the book for for a while is this notion that in the biochemistry of life, many, you know, very large percentage of biomolecules exhibit these process-dependent properties such that they are reciprocally like the products and the producers of other molecules. So they're the, both the means and the ends, as you say, in networks of synthetic pathways. So you kind of have all of these reciprocal loops that tend to form between these biomolecules. What's the significance of that kind of dynamic when you start to think about the origin of life and the things that you're talking about in terms of constraints? So one of the ways that I think we've been misled in the discussion of the origins of life is that we've discovered over the last century, more than a century now, a lot of processes that actually, on the surface of it, look as though they're reversing the second law of thermodynamics. That is, where there was once chaos, there becomes more orderly activity. The tr most trivial example of this is probably a whirlpool that forms, for example, in your bathtub when you pull the plug. Um, the water molecules in the bathtub before this are moving at random, bumping into each other, according to Brownian motion. Um, but as soon as we pull the plug, um, water molecules around the drain begin to organize their movement so that over time they become highly regular, in which almost all the mo water molecules are moving in a circle, creating this whirlpool uh, as it drains out. It turns out that if you were to constantly, you know, disturb that whirlpool, say by, you know, your hand messing it up all the time, actually the tub would drain slightly slower. Uh, and it turns out that when, when processes are dumping energy, we sometimes call these dissipative processes, they're dissipating energy. Um, when they dissipate energy quite rapidly, or as they approach more rapid ways to dissipate energy, um, they become more orderly. Why? Because orderly movement more quickly moves things from place to place. So that um, if there's a tendency in the world to maximize the flow and the breakdown of a gradient, that is a difference in potential, um, then it will tend, if there's a big pressure to dissipate that potential like gravity pulling water down this, this hole, um, then what will happen is that it will spontaneously organize. The world tends to self-organize, and that's one of the terms we use, self-organization. But here's the problem. Self-organization does produce order. That is, it produces constraint. Not all the possible movements of water molecules are there. They're now constrained. Um, what's happened is this happens spontaneously. This is why we call it self-organization. Um, we see this in lots of other phenomena, but the whirlpool is a good one to start with. Um, the problem here is that self-organized processes do produce order and look like they're going against the second law of thermodynamics in the very process of achieving equilibrium. And in fact, they do it faster than otherwise. So the whirlpool actually empties the bathtub faster. The problem is what that says is that if you have processes that spontaneously generate order, um, they also are using up the energy that drives them fast as possible. And in fact, their whole, if you want to think of them as having a purpose and end, of course they don't, it's spontaneous. Um, it's 
to break down the very support that it has as fast as possible. Well, to build an organism, you have to produce orderly processes. You have to push something beyond equilibrium so that it becomes regularized in the same sense. Um, but here's the problem. It can't be just self-organization because self-organization would destroy itself. It's in the process of destroying itself. The, the paradox of bodies is we they have to use chemical self-organizing processes to, main, to build and maintain their order, their organization, but cannot let those processes run to completion. How could that possibly happen? Well, one way to do it is to somehow block it. How do you block it? My solution to that is that two self-organizing processes that each produce the boundary conditions, the things that make another self-organization possible, but also keep it from running to completion. If the two of them reciprocally do that for each other, then what you have is a system that generates order, but prevents that order of breaking down. So in a very simple answer here is, how do you go from processes that are just increasing thermodynamic entropy and are in the process of destroying themselves, so to speak? Um, how do you go from systems like that to a system that actually maintain, produces order and maintains it? And the answer is, if it's going to be dynamic, if it's going to be continuous, it must be systems that, in a sense, are complementary to each other. They each are, in a sense, the boundary conditions, the conditions that make the others possible and keep them from running over. So our bodies are, are made up of loops like this, thousands and thousands of these chemically that have built up and built up and built up. But that's threshold that has to be crossed. Yeah. I mean, immediately I start to think about, you know, when you go study biology in college, um, you learn about all sorts of signal transduction pathways and energy gradients and, you know, protein networks and things and all these different receptors and ion channels and, you know, all of the stuff of the cell. And, you know, most of it is directly or indirectly tied to um, utilizing or recreating some kind of gradient or some kind of, you know, difference. So when you think about, you know, ion channels in a neuron, for example, um, they're allowing things to happen according to just, you know, the spontaneous physics of the situation, things go from high to low concentration, but there's all these mechanisms in the cell that regenerate those gradients. And exactly. if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're basically saying is you can have, you know, these kinds of loops that are self-organizing that will tend to run down these energy gradients that undermine the ability to continue themselves. But if you take opposing or I guess complementary processes like this, and you have two of them, and one of them sort of creates the conditions for the other and vice versa, you can get into a situation where uh, multiple systems are involved in regenerating each other. Exactly, exactly. Now, and, and there's a very abstract sense of how you cross that threshold. Um, my guess is that there's probably many molecular ways in which this can be realized. Um, I've come up with one sort of model system for talking about it, but I think I think this is, if you think about it, um, what this says is that at least that aspect of life, this transition, um, probably can be accomplished 
relatively easy with simple parts, simple molecular processes. And that suggests to me that it's probably, at least this first stage, is probably pretty widespread in the cosmos. Um, whether it can get complex like us, that's a much bigger question. It takes much more special conditions. But this is not a very special relationship. Um, and so I think of it as, a, as a, a fairly generic way to think about the origins of life. But notice that this is a version of the origins of life that is not about copying molecules. This is not about DNA or RNA or some, some master molecule that seems to control things like a manager. Um, this is actually about a process that has to precede that. The real question is, okay, given that, how does a molecule within that process become about other molecules? How does it carry information that organizes what other molecules do? and organizes what other molecules do with respect to the environment so that the whole system is maintained. Um, this is the next question. So crossing this threshold, I think, is not probably difficult in the, the cosmos in general. Um, going beyond that probably is more difficult. And yet one of the things that's, that's quite clear is that once you've got a system that, in a sense, maintains itself and repairs itself when damaged, when pushed away from its balance of the of the parts that are relationship in relation to each other, then you've also got something that's like memory. It remembers where it was, and once you have memory, you can build, you can add new memory. That is, evolution becomes possible because you save information and reuse it. And once you can save information and reuse it, you can add new informational tweaks to that. Um, so this is also one of the interesting things about life is that when it first occurred, um, even though it's incredibly rare probably in the cosmos, once it occurs, it becomes incredibly prolific on the Earth once it shows up, um, you know, just a little after four billion years ago, when the Earth is just barely cool enough to handle it. Um, it not only continues, but it begins to complexify and does so quite rapidly. Uh, in terms of cosmic time, uh, three billion years is a, is a, just a small piece of time. Uh, so one of the interesting things about life is that not only is it, does it, in a sense, resist the second law of thermodynamics in some interesting ways um, and allows itself to persist for long periods of time, um, it also even gets more complex. That's just the reverse in another way. So as soon as you cross this threshold, because you've got memory for the first time, even if it's complicated, you know, distributed memory made up of a handful of separate chemicals, um, once you've got this and that capacity can build on itself, you spontaneously get the increase in complexity, not the decrease as the second law of thermodynamics would suggest. Evolution has that feature as well. And so, you know, when we talk about you know, the emergence of life, um, we're, we're going to talk about emergence at, at sort of multiple levels, the emergence of of consciousness, you've got the emergence of life. You know, this is a, a, a term that gets used quite a bit um, in philosophy and elsewhere. Can you define for people exactly what you mean by emergence? When we say something's an emergent phenomenon, what exactly does that mean? Well, one of the problems is the term has been used, as you say, so diversely. Um, it's been used to talk about almost magic, you know, how something that didn't exist, you know, 
rabbit coming out of the hat. Um, to some extent, we have that feeling when we think about, for example, the origins of life. There was nothing like it there before. It's like pulling a rabbit out of the hat. Um, but what we know about magic is it's all trickery. You know, it's just how things get organized and um, how the causality is not obvious uh, from the start, but shows up eventually. Um, so emergence, first of all, is not magic. Um, but what we do want to explain is how certain kinds of properties of things show up in the world when they didn't exist before that. The case of life that we've just started this conversation on maybe has to do with something like normativity, value, um, the fact that there can be good and bad chemistry. Um, there's not good and bad chemistry in a cosmic sense, but for every bacterium and even for every virus, there is good and bad chemistry. We can talk about destroying, killing viruses. We've been in the process of trying to deal with how to get rid of viruses. Um, it's bad for viruses, um, what we're doing. Um, having human beings that pass this stuff on by coughing and sneezing at each other is good for the viruses. Um, that normativity appeared on the earth somewhere around three and a half, 3.8 billion years ago. Um, that looks like rabbit coming out of the hat. We use the term emergence to talk about that. What I've tried to do is to say, no, emergence has a structure. It's not just magic. It's not just unguessable, impossible things suddenly showing up. It has a structure. And what is that structure? I've tried to identify it in, this, in the case of life. I've tried to say, look, what we know is the second law of thermodynamics has certain properties. But if you push things in second, the second law of thermodynamics far enough, you get self-organizing processes. I've called them morphodynamic processes, that is, form-generating processes, regularity-generating processes. And that they emerge in thermodynamic systems when energy production systems and dissipative systems are balanced to each other in certain ways. And what happens is you get processes that seem to invert the logic that was happening before that. As you invert superficially and locally what looks like what the second law of thermodynamics should have produced, the whirlpool is more organized. Um, the question is, is there another step like that going to life? And what I tried to describe just a few minutes ago was how also juxtaposing morphodynamic processes, self-organizing processes with respect to each other in such a way that they complement each other also produces another reversal. And that is the reversal of these processes that tend to undermine themselves. Life doesn't tend to undermine itself. Um, these are reversals. And so it has this sort of rabbit coming out of the hat appearance. But what I tried to say is that, no, if we actually look at how this actually happens, um, there's a physical story to be told. It's not magic. But it also doesn't mean that it's um, completely reducible. Uh, and one of the ways that people have used the term emergence is to talk about it's it's not reductionism. Reductionism says that everything that's going on is just the bumping in of uh, of atoms bumping into each other, uh, atoms in the void and moving around and bumping into each other and sticking with each other, affecting each other and so on. Um, life is not just that. What we're talking about is something in addition. Now, and here's the interesting part, and it's where we began this discussion. What's being added are new kinds of constraints, 
new kinds of preventions, new kinds of absences. This is what information is about. Information is about what it's not. So what's actually happening is, no, we're not adding new kinds of laws of physics. We're not talking about adding new kinds of atoms, new kinds of materials. Um, they could all have been explained with chemistry. In fact, organic chemistry can be explained chemically. How the organic molecules get generated is also a chemical process, but it's a specially constrained chemical process. So that I think of emergence as the very fact that new information, new constraints can always be created and can be destroyed. But when certain kinds of constraints are produced, the kind of constraints that I call teleodynamic constraints, that is the kind of constraints that we see in living processes that have an end that tend to maintain themselves. Once you have that, now you have a system that can evolve, can get more complex. Uh, and in that respect, what I mean by getting more complex is you're adding more complex kinds of constraints. Our brain is not doing anything that's not possible chemically or physically, but it's doing it in a very uniquely constrained, in a complex constrained way. It's adding new constraints. Constraints can be added. New kinds of prevention can be added to the world. And what's added is not more stuff. It's more constraint. And I think the reason that we've had trouble thinking about it is we don't like to think about absences being added. Absences seems, seems like something that's being taken away. We don't think about complexity, increasing complexity, as being a more re reductions. In fact, I think that we have to begin thinking about complexity in terms of prevention, of absences. Yeah, so, so information... You know, when there's more information, uh, you you know more. That's how we sort of uh, think about it in, in very basic terms. But what you're saying is, information is a reduction in uncertainty. Um, and so, when you add more constraints to a system, you add more information to the system. But what you're really doing is sort of preventing it from from taking on many other states. Exactly. And when we, when we think about information in in biophysical terms. You know, the, the first thing that people probably think about is something like the genome, uh, DNA or RNA. And, you know, the, the sort of cartoon explanation of DNA is it's a blueprint for the organism. It contains the instructions for the organism. So on the one hand, you can have information encoded in the genome that will that will be expressed as as development proceeds. On the other hand, much of stuff in cellular life isn't actually directly encoded by the genome. There's a lot of these sort of self-assembling molecules that do stuff that doesn't strictly depend on uh, uh, what's encoded in the genome. So, in thinking about you know the emergence of life and the complexification of life, you know if life is n-directed in the sense that it you know it's 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 wanting to reproduce itself, where does that end come from? Can it be encoded directly in the genome, or is it sort of coming? Is it coming from somewhere else? Well, so. So the first first point is that it had to emerge initially, right? The origins of life is actually about the origins of end directedness. And the end is to maintain the ability to have end directedness. So it's 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 a circle in that respect. That is, I'm producing something to make it possible to produce something. Um that is the case for all life. In fact, that's the 
you might say, the beginning of what we want to call self. And this is why it's going to expand well beyond the origins of life, because what we really want to explain is how self comes into the world. Um, and that's, of course, what we want to explain in terms of us and in terms of what brains do, what consciousness is about you know, at the highest level. Um, but if we don't understand the nature of self, we can't even get started. And so part of what I wanted to do in this work is to say, okay, let's try to get the most straightforward, simplest understanding of how self comes into the world. Um, and the way it does is that it, it now constrains what can happen so that self doesn't disappear. Um, if it gets damaged, it repairs itself. I actually think of reproduction as just a sort of variant of self-repair. Um, that I, you know, if if I can repair myself, put myself back together again, that means I can also probably put together a replica of me. Uh, and so when I see the origins of DNA, I actually think of DNA as ways of offloading and remembering how it's done so that it doesn't have to be done dynamically, so that I can have a kind of a, like a, a written base that is a structure. I can turn these constraints, which are just constraints on dynamics, limitations of how things happen. Um, also, structure represents constraint. And so the structure of a DNA molecule actually encodes constraints. So what we want to say is that DNA molecule, yes, it produces proteins by this complicated process, um, as well as other things like RNA molecules that themselves can regulate DNA molecules and regulate proteins. Um, but in this process, what's happening is it produces some and not others. The number of possible proteins of 100 amino acids long is astronomical. Life produces a tiny, tiny fraction of possible proteins. Uh, and in this respect, what we can say is that DNA is a way of of encoding and remembering the constraints by taking what were dynamical possibilities of possible interactions that could take place and um, offloading that information onto the constraint of a structure, the structure of a molecule. Now, what's interesting ab about this process um, is that as soon as you do that, um, you have something that's more durable than dynamical processes like the actual interactions of proteins in the cell. Uh, the durable thing can stay there because it's it's easily remembered. The, the power of DNA, in part, is the fact that it's a very robust molecule. It's hard to mess it up. And as a result, it's a great memory system. RNA molecules are not so good. They're easy to break up. Um, but because of that, RNA molecules do a lot more regulation. But now here's the thing. I like to call this the, um, we, you've all heard of the selfish gene story. I like to think about this as the lazy gene story. Um, if processes tend to happen spontaneously in the world, once you've got a bunch of molecules sitting out there, and just because of their shape and the way they interact, they spontaneously um, produce structures. They fall together in the way that snow crystals simply fall together in regular shapes because of the very nature of water molecules and their geometry. Um, those are things that, if that happens spontaneously, um, all DNA has to do is to remember the conditions that make it likely to happen. DNA doesn't have to do the work of putting things together. It just has to constrain the boundary conditions that make these self-organizing processes happen. 
One of my favorite examples of a self-organizing process like this is the Fibonacci series. Um, Fibonacci series is a series of numbers, one, two, three, five, three plus five is eight, eight plus five is uh, 13, so on and so forth. Just adding the last two numbers gives you the Fibonacci series. The Fibonacci series is really remarkable. Because what it means is that the, the relative distance between any two adjacent sequences is basically the same. Um, and this is what's produced also what we sometimes call the, the golden mean, the golden section ratio, the thing that makes um, spirals regular as they grow out. Well, the, one of the most interesting spirals in life is um, what we call spiral phylotaxis. What I mean by this is looking at the surface of a sunflower, for example, you see that the seeds are all organized in interesting kind of spiral patterns. In fact, the spiral of the sunflower um, has to do with two interlocking spirals that curve in opposite directions. And the number of curves of those spirals um, curving to the right versus curving to the left, and in a sense, crossing over each other like this, um, turn out to be adjacent Fibonacci numbers. So that there's some, like in, for example, pine cones, one of the curves is a five, and the other curve is typically an eight. There's eight in one direction, five in the other direction, and they inter, inter, inter fit with each other. Um, however, you can get um, much higher order relationships in things like sunflowers and things. It turns out that many, many plants are organized this way. Now, there's a real advantage to this organization because it also keeps, you know, if you've got a stalk and a bunch of leaves, it keeps the leaves maximally from interfering with each other. If you want to have a really successful way of capturing sunlight, you want to have your leaves dispersed in such a way that they're minimally out of each other's way. The Fibonacci series um, allows that to happen. It's a very, very useful series. Well, why does it happen in the surface of a sunflower? It turns out that we can produce the same series um, by, by dropping droplets um, uh, that will stay in a particular size and won't fit with each other into a bowl. Um, they'll begin to form a Fibonacci spiral. Um, we can now do this, show this on an electrically charged surface that little iron filings will organize themselves into successive Fibonacci spirals. These things happen spontaneously precisely because they're pushing each other out of position in just such a way that new parts added will have a new position and will be maximally out of position with the last ones. The Fibonacci relationship is very, very precise, but the genes don't have to have the information that says I need to produce five in this direction and eight in that direction. All the genes have to do is to set up parameters in which they're diffusing elements that diffuse out and don't allow certain things to grow or show up until the concentrations are just right. So by setting the boundary conditions, the genes don't have to do this. My point of calling this the lazy gene hypothesis, that means that if by accident, these kinds of regularities um, just happen to show up in life, the genes don't have to make it anymore. They can now just sort of back up and only do the boundary conditions that are necessary. The reason that we can have a genome that's in our body not much larger than the mouse genome 
and yet build a body that's vastly more complex, build a brain that's vastly more complex, even though we have essentially the same number of genes for building our brain as the mouse does to build its brain, um, is that a lot of those processes self-organize and the genes have just taken advantage of that. Um, so it's an optimization process. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why bodies are even possible because the genes have also, as I mentioned before, the constraints can be offloaded onto genes, but the constraints in genes can be offloaded onto these self-organizing processes. And this makes it possible to build bodies of incredible complexity. Hmm. Yeah. I was actually, um, thinking that as you were, as you were speaking, um, how, how is it that you can have, you know, whatever it is, 20,000 genes to create the complexity of a human body. And that's comparable or even sometimes less than uh, organisms that, that look much less complex than us. And what you're saying is it has to do with the fact that the genes aren't directly encoding like every single thing that needs to happen in every single cell. They're just creating the boundary conditions, the general, uh, the general boundary conditions inside of which all of these self-assembling processes will just happen within within uh, the constraints of those conditions. Right, and if you think about it, what we say, what we mean by boundary conditions are constraints, constraints on possible interactions. Um, so let's, this is again an example of building constraints upon constraints upon constraints. This is how complexity builds. But now, you know, I always tell my students uh, in my neuroscience classes, um, the number of genes that are to, necessary to build a mouse brain is roughly the size of the last digit of your little finger. And the numbers of genes, the corresponding genes to build your brain and my brain, which is roughly the size of a pineapple, are essentially the same. How, and yet the information in just the structure of a brain the size of a pineapple in which every neuron is connected to every other neuron by at least a thousand other connections in both of these brains. The complexity of your brain and my brain is orders and orders of magnitude larger. And yet the information that sets it up is essentially the same in magnitude. So going back to something that you touched on earlier, um, so your book is Incomplete Nature. That's basically the one that we're talking about. It's a very interesting book and also a very challenging book, uh, given the subject matter. One of the things that was challenging about it, but also rewarding if you if you stick with it, is you had to create new terminology just to talk about some of the some of the concepts that that you discuss in the book. And you mentioned a couple earlier. So you talked about something called morphodynamics. So dynamical systems that create form. And then you talked about something called teleodynamics and I'll let you unpack those for people, but the basic idea that I took away was if you take systems that are away from equilibrium, they'll naturally want to you know, go from high energy to low energy, do basic thermodynamic stuff, and that can create form. So like the Whirlpool example that you used earlier. And if you take multiple patterns like that and you sort of let them rub against each other in certain ways, they can create higher order patterns that develop interesting properties. So what are these terms and how exactly do these concepts start to stack on top of each other to th help us think about something like the transition from non-life to life? So, so the three terms I use, and they, and they talk about what I would say, it's just an expansion of the concept of thermodynamics. What I wanted to do, however, was to talk about not just what we call near equilibrium thermodynamics, where things tend to go down to a more homogeneous state, which I call 
homeodynamic processes. Um, but then there are these processes we just were talking about that um, by virtue of going down to those states, um, do so in such a way that in the process, they generate localized form. Um, that form is transient, it disappears fairly quickly. Um, I call that morphodynamics. I, I, I think to some extent the term self-organization, um, which is a little broader in its usage, um, corresponds to morphodynamics. But what I wanted was a term that talked about um, the, you might say, the feature of dynamics that stands out, the form generating dynamics. Um, telio, of course, refers to teleology and directed. Um, and so my interest here was to say, okay, um, clearly living processes are dynamical processes. Living processes are thermodynamic processes. Living processes are far from equilibrium thermodynamic processes that are dissipating and generating order like a whirlpool or like the formation of a snow crystal. Um, and yet, um, they do one other thing. Living processes maintain that capacity. That is, they keep things far from equilibrium. They are not just maintaining, far, generating form by far from equilibrium processes. They're actually maintaining the capacity to do that, not allowing those processes to run out. Um, and that is, that now becomes um, not just an end that they go towards, but an end that they maintain that's unstable. Living processes are maintaining an unstable distance from equilibrium. We're maintaining ourselves. Um, now, because we're also self-organizing or morphodynamic, we also need to have input of materials and energy, just like the whirlpool needs. So part of what's going on is it's structured in such a way that it finds new sources of energy finds new sources of material that are constantly being broken down by the second law. Um, but it's teleodynamic, has a dynamic that's towards an end, um, and that end turns out to be itself, but there are also sub-ends in this process. One end is therefore keeping in touch with a source of energy, keeping away from dangerous processes. Those are ends. So in just having an end to maintain yourself, um, and because you're maintained by virtue of constantly taking in energy and material from the environment and resisting perturbation from the environment, um, you also have those as ends, you might say sub-ends. Um, and as things get more complex, there will be more and more sub-ends in this process. Teleodynamics is a process that becomes more teleological over time. The ends become more complex over time. And the development of human ends, of course, are much, much more complex, um, but they're built up by this billions of years process of, of ends being built upon ends being built upon ends um, that originally start from just keeping yourself going. Yeah. And I mean, I can, you know, what I start to think about here with a background in neuroscience is, you know, if you imagine sort of the simplest pseudo life forms that arose um, they're basically, you know, going to be some little cell that is, you know, sucking in nutrients from the environment in order to keep itself going. Once you have that, uh, there's going to be an immense selection pressure to do that and also create a copy of yourself to replicate. And as soon as you have that, you're going to outcompete 
the things that are simply eating to maintain themselves and not replicating. And if you just sort of roll the clock forward and you start to think about animals with brains and things like that, right? You, what you tend to find in brains is a sort of a, a hierarchy of motivations. And you know, we always think about the reproductive one being on top. That's sort of the final end, the final telos. And then of course, right, you've got to drink water and you've got to do that even more than you got to eat food because you'll die earlier without water. And you got to eat food more than you've got to, you know, do these other things. And you sort of get these uh these different ends that stack on top of each other in a hierarchy. Is that how you start to think about things like animals? I do. Um and there's a second issue with respect to brains that's very important. Um, uh, and that is that our bodies are teleodynamic. They're, they are maintained, they do all of this stuff to maintain themselves as every plant body, as every um, uh, fungal body does. Um, on top of that, animals do something interesting. They have added a component, a brain, that has its own self. It's a self within the self. So I oftentimes think about the fact that, you know, I. I I could lose a leg in an accident and myself would be maintained. Um, in fact, we human beings are attached to this neurological self. Um, but my point about teleodynamics is that teleodynamics is generating self. If we want to understand why critters with nervous systems have a sense of self, it's a sense of self within a self. In some sense, there's the teleodynamics of my body as the indirectedness of being alive. But then one of the sub-goals of this is a system that begins to analyze all the other possible sub-goals that could be there. One of them is about being in the body. So there's an interesting twist here. I like to call this sort of second-order teleodynamics. It's teleodynamics within teleodynamics that may, maintains itself. It's, it's a kind of self within a self. Um, and this is one of the things that we're very clear about in terms of our experience, our reflection upon being alive. Um, I don't worry about, you know, going under the knife and anesthesia because myself is going to come back again and be maintained. Um, I am worried about dying, however, because the self that's neurological depends upon this other self. In a sense, we have a very clear sense that part of this mental self is also in an environment of physiological body self. So a lot of what our nervous system is doing is assessing um, all those features of our body. In fact, that's what they evolved to do initially. And it runs basically simulations about that body. Um, but now simulations about that body with respect to the rest of the world uh, in a way that plants don't do. Plants are more directly involved in this. Um, so I, I, I like to call all of this sentience in the broadest sense. I think that even bacteria have a sentience in the sense that they respond to their environment and they react to changes in their environment to maintain themselves. Um, plants do that as well. Our body does that as well. Um, even when we're asleep, even when we're anesthetized. Um, but there's a, a sense in which we're also doing that um, in a kind of simulation level. And nervous systems are doing that. So it's a self within a self in some sense. It's a, it's a second order teleodynamics is what I like to call it. Or you might say it's 
There is vegetative sentience, which is more directly related to the world. And then there's um, subjective sentience, which is creating a simulation of that relationship within that relationship. And so it's, just, it's a much more complicated issue. And this is what makes brains so complicated. What I like to tell people is that although we're very worried about consciousness, trying to explain consciousness, um, if we can't explain self, we can't even get started with the consciousness story. Because it's there's a kind of self that's neurological, that's different from the self of life. Sort of superimposed on top of, but it's also inside of. And so... When we think about when you start to think about brains and how they're doing this sort of second order selfhood thing and doing all of the interesting things that that brains do, you know, when we think about neurons, we often, um, you know, neurons fire signals. They're these sort of binary signals in most animals. They either fire or they don't fire. Um, and we talk about neurons performing computations and the brain being computer-like in certain ways. To what extent do you think? Biological brains really are like computers, and to what extent are thoughts and, and things, you know, cognitive operations and things like that, reducible to a series of computations? I like to say that machines don't think, and brains don't compute. Um, and what I mean by that, um, I think, can be understood in the following sense: that is, the take the parts of a machine, we put them together. The parts are independent of each other. We put them together, and if they work just right in interacting with each other, they produce some consequence. I talked about this early on in our conversation about, you know, you, you constrain the way they interact, and if you constrain them just right, they produce something. Um, they are not about themselves. They're, what they're doing is not maintaining themselves. It's not generating themselves. Um, there's nothing about the cogs in a clock or the um, gates in a computer that are about producing clogs or producing gates or maintaining clogs or gates. Everything about a neuron is about maintaining itself. It's being disturbed by all kinds of inputs coming in, uh, and it's responding by changing its metabolism and sending out some signals. Every neuron is teleodynamic. Every neuron is alive, is an individual in some sense, responding to its local environment, which is a bunch of other neural signals coming in, and metabolism as well. Um, one of the things about living systems is that every part of a living system um, carries a kind of trace of the whole that it's a part of. Think about the following sense that when an embryo develops, it starts as a single ovum single egg that gets fertilized. Um, and it's got structure and, and, and chemistry and information. Um, but as the organism develops and these cells divide and divide, become different parts of the body, um, they turn on and off some aspects of the information that was there initially. But to some extent, because they differentiate from a whole that was functioning from the very beginning, didn't wait till all the parts were put together to function. An individual zygote is still a functioning, complete functioning organism in some sense. It's single-celled organism. Um, but in the process of differentiating and producing all of these parts, all the parts to some extent maintain a trace of the whole. 
the wholeness that was there at the beginning that's never lost. In some sense, in no part of a machine has that. Every single part of a machine that we put together, of a computer or a clock or, a, or whatever, is independent. And it's assembled by putting things together that were apart, whereas an organism builds by differentiating what was originally already a functioning whole. In other words, engineering is in some respects the inverse of life in the way we produce a complex structure. Um, I like to say that, you know, cognition, we got to start thinking about cognition as living, as a living process. Cognition is a process that I think is also differentiating like organisms. I don't think thoughts are composed of parts put together. They're differentiated feelings, differentiated by inputs, differentiated um, by complexifying each other, by differentiated by new constraints on the dynamics of how the nervous system is working, growing and growing and growing like the constraints of a growing organism as it's differentiating. I think thoughts differentiate. I think the sentences I'm producing differentiate. What do I mean by that? The words, I think, are the very last things. The sounds are the very last things to be developed. Um, there's something else that's well before a sentence that's floating around in my thinking process that is staying the same throughout the development of these sentences as it is in your thinking. Um, that's not a sentence. It's a thought. The, the words that I'm producing, the sentence is a differentiation of that undifferentiated sort of generic thought. In that respect, um, we do something very different in computing. However, and this is an important thing to think about, when we try to automate a skill, when I become a really good typist or tennis player or pianist, uh, one of the things that's going on is that I'm making it unconscious. In the process, it's becoming so automatic, so well organized that it can be run without supervision, so to speak or with supervision at a very high level. In a sense, what we sometimes call, what computers do, we sometimes say a computer is a virtual machine. What do I mean by that is that um, by organizing the constraints, organizing how the switches are set up with respect to each other, it can emulate the kind of dynamics that a particular machine could have had. Um, what we do, of course, in a computer is we say that this state and that state and that state, we're just going to describe them. Um, as a particular symbolic meaning, as having a meaning. And so by running the machine, I'm, it's like I'm manipulating different represent, representations, different aboutnesses. But of course, the machine is just a machine. The aboutness is interpreted by looking at it. Now let's look at an organism doing the same thing. What's going on with the organism is that the parts themselves are in the process of maintaining themselves. What they're doing, in a sense, is keeping the whole system going. Um, but that means that each one of them is already teleodynamic. Each one of them already has a low-level sentience, so to speak. And what we're seeing in the whole is a higher-level sentience emerging. Um, what's going on in this process is that it's been about something all along. It's not just been put together, it's differentiated. So what computing does is just the opposite. And we try, as we acquire new skills, to do something that's a little bit like computing, but we're no, no, nowhere near as good at it. 
neurons, because they're mostly doing something else, don't automate very well. We can do a pretty good job of it, but we can never keep track of our, you know, do calculations as fast as our hand calculators can. Um, we can never sort of keep up with computers as the way they do things. But precisely because at no stage are we computing, but we're actually growing information, maturing information, differentiating information. It's exactly the opposite kind of process that computing is engaged in. So I like to, I like to think, again, that what computers are doing is something, in a sense, just the reverse of what brains are doing. And yet they converge on this in the sense that what we would like brains to do is to do some things automatically so that they're almost like computers. So my ability to type is almost like a computer. Um, what we would like artificial intelligence to do is something almost like what brains do. Um, what we find, however, is that we're doing artificial intelligence mostly like we build machines. We don't yet quite know how to make machines differentiate information. Uh, and I, I don't think it's impossible, but I think what we do that, what, that we call computing is very different than what brains do. Uh, your sound is off. Oh, sorry. Um, so when you talk about sentience, if I'm hearing you right, it what you're really referring to with that word is the intrinsic tendency towards self-preservation, which can exist at the whole organism level, but also at the level of individual cells. And so what you're saying is you know, every neuron, every cell in the body has this instinct, so to speak. It wants to preserve itself. And that is a very different property than the components of machines like computers that we build. Absolutely right. And another way to think about it is that um, because you're far from equilibrium, because you're not a chunk of metal that won't decay, but because being constantly active is the only way you stay far from equilibrium, you stay organized, um, then to some extent, the environment is absolutely critical. Everything that's not me is critical to everything that's me. And so sentience is the fact that if you're that kind of a thing, you always are in tension with the environment with the environment with respect to what your needs are. Now, whether you're a bacterial cell, a neuron, or a whole body, that's true. Nothing about a machine is doing that. The machine, each part, is interacting with other parts in maybe very complex ways. But that interaction has nothing to do with that part's existence. Machines aren't involved in their own existence. Everything about life is about existing. I like to distinguish this using, you know, almost philosophical terms, existing versus being. Rocks can continue exist to exist. The sec first law of thermodynamics says that matter, as we said, matter and energy um, are neither created nor destroyed. Um, constraints are. Because we're made up of constraints, constrained matter and energy interactions, um, we need to constantly do something to exist. We, we're beings. We're not just existences. We're being. And we can stop being when these processes fail. 
So there's existing and there's being. We're beings. Um, we are actively in the process of maintaining and producing existence. You can't say that about any inorganic thing. And so as we as we start to think, go from sort of this basic sentience, this basic self-preservation quality that life and, and even individual cells have, and we start to think about higher order things like, you know, having uh, this sort of uh, second order sense of self, the simulation of yourself um, and things like emotion, you know, how do you distinguish between something like sentience and a consciously experienced emotion? And how do you think about that in terms of the kinds of dynamics you discuss in the book? That's a good question. So let me start with the simplest version of this. Descartes set us on this problem of trying to solve consciousness and 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 self and cognition and so on with this cogito ergo sum. Um, that is, I think, therefore I am. Um, a student once suggested that we should change this, and I think the student was right. It's, I feel, therefore I'm real. Um, because you're an organism that is constantly at risk, um, breaking down, things going wrong, has to feel because existence is threatened. Sentience, another word for it, is feeling, to feel. Because every living thing is constantly in interchange with the world and yet is also separate from the world, there's self and other in this process, feeling is primary. And so what I mean by vegetative sentience is it's a kind of feeling. Um, what I meant by subjective sentience is, in a sense, a higher order kind of feeling. My body is feeling, but now I'm, in a sense, I've got to simulate the feeling of my body by a higher order kind of feeling. So I used to talk about how brains function. I'm, I'm a neuroscientist by background. Um, and when I begin to think about how brains function in these terms, I realize that once we get over the computer metaphor, we stop thinking about neurons as chips sending signals back and forth, um, I begin to recognize that maybe I should be using the same logic we've talked about the origins of life with. The origins of life is about how new form of self comes into the world, how new kinds of telos, new kinds of indirectedness emerge in the world. How do they emerge? They emerge out of this particular relationship between morphodynamic processes, processes that are generating form. Those are all dynamical processes. I now am beginning to think that, in fact, it's not that neurons are storing information, that a thought is something dynamical. It's something like a flame, something like the whirlpool. It's a dynamical structure. It's the result of millions of neurons or hundreds of thousands of neurons <coughs> turning each other on and off upregulating and downregulating each other's firing patterns, producing a kind of orchestral piece, local orchestral piece, in which some things are getting louder, some things are getting softer. There's lots of neurons firing together in synchrony and dyssynchrony and in counterpoint of each other. I think of a thought like I think of a piece of music. And I think that what we experience, the units that we experience that brains produce, 
I think are what we call in dynamical processes attractors. But mm. I think it's much more appropriate to describe them as something like a melody or actually almost orchestral piece. Excuse me. Yeah, I mean that that's interesting. One of um, you know, one observation that's been made uh, multiple times in experimental neuroscience in you know the the past few years at least is um the the basic result is you know you have an animal do something and it requires the animal to to behave and you know we at least like to think that the animal is also doing something like thinking uh, but one of the interesting results that's out there is you know you have an animal perform a task run through a maze or something like this and you record a bunch of neurons in its cortex or somewhere trial by trial by trial a whole bunch of times so the animal has to make the same kind of decision many different times over many different trials and what you tend to find is uh when the animal makes you know decision a you find a certain pattern of neural activity um but actually different neurons are involved each time so so what's preserved is actually the pattern not the individual cells and things uh producing the pattern the the pattern itself can be produced in many different ways by bending many different combinations of neurons and that starts to sound something like what you're saying exactly exactly and what i want to say is that when we think about pattern we didn't tend to think about static things but what we're really talking about here is a pattern across time with multiple contributors to it. That's why I like the model, the example of music, um, a piece of music. It has that kind of complexity to it. Um, and the nice thing about that way of thinking about an experience um, is that it has structure to it. Um, but notice that to produce form like that, this is morphodynamics. This is the process of self-organization. How does it happen? It happens in the physical world by pouring energy through a system, forcing energy through a system. What's happening when these patterns generate in the nervous system? It turns out we now have a way to recognize this. It's using fMRI or PET techniques. We're actually looking at the fact that metabolism changes. <laughs> I like to think about the increase of metabolism as being like heating up a system that's generating a pattern um, uh, or like increasing the flow of water down a trough and increasing as a result, the number of whirlpools that form. Um, one of the things that happens is to generate new form. Um, one of the things we have to do is we have to have a dissipative process in which you pour energy through the system. So it shouldn't surprise us that when we're really working at a particular say visual task, um, the metabolism of the visual system seems to ramp up in comparison to other areas. Um, now, it also helps us understand a little bit about feeling. Um, because what this says is that the dynamics of the nervous system and the metabolism of the nervous system are entangled with each other. They're coupled. You can't have one without the other. That means if you pull metabolism away from some area, the regularity that it's producing, the regular form that it's producing will disappear. So think about, you know, you know, you've got your, your, your orchestra is playing and basically you begin to put people to sleep. Well, what happens is the pattern disappears. The pattern gets simpler. Um, and what we find is that when we're relaxed and simple, the patterns are simple as well. When we're very excited, um, 
the patterns get more complicated when we're working on something. Now, what originally made me think about this is work by a, a, a neuroscientist here at Berkeley from now a generation ago, a man named Walter Freeman. And he was studying um, how rabbit olfactory bulbs work. The nice thing about the rabbit olfactory bulb, this is the part of the brain that takes in smell. Um, it's got a fairly wide surface. They're kind of flat on the surface. And uh, olfactory bulb cortex is a little bit like cerebral cortex. It's a cortex that has cells in it that are organized in a, a sort of, not columnar pattern, but, but basically a radial pattern. Um, so it's a kind of cortex. What Walter Freeman found is that when um, rabbits begin to focus on a particular smell, and they've learned to recognize this smell, um, the activity in the olfactory bulb goes from relatively chaotic to a regular pattern. And each smell has a distinctive regular pattern. Um, so what's happening is that <laughs> when it's not focused on a particular smell, it's in a, what we call dynamical chaotic condition. And as it begins to focus on a particular smell, it becomes regularized. Regularized differently for each smell, so that you might say for each odor, you've got a distinct melody that's being played. And like you say, it's the same melody roughly is being played, but lots of different neurons are active each time. But the large-scale pattern seems to be common. Now, what's interesting is that when neurons begin to form these kinds of patterns, metabolism is pumped up. So what we see here is that you can turn the story around and now say maybe one way to focus attention on smell might be to pump up metabolism so that you can actually now see that metabolism itself and its increase or decrease is playing a critical role in cognition, in the experience of what's going on, because it will determine how these things form. Now contrast this again with computers. One of the things we try to do with computers is keep the energy constant. The change of energy plays no role. It can just screw things up if the energy is a problem. Whereas in the nervous system, because it's a living system, changes in energy are also changes in cognition, changes in experience. But that means there can also be a tension between the activity that a neuron is engaged in, and whether it's got enough or too much oxygen and glucose, its source of energy. There can be a tension between the activity of the neuron and its metabolism. Neurons can run out of fuel, and as a result, they stop firing. In fact, if they run out of fuel too much, they'll die. So what we've got here in a system is in which um, feeling now actually has an energetic component. Because the energy, of course, is also supplied by the body. And changing the sensitivity of neurons is also something that sensory systems within the body are providing neurons, upregulating up and downregulating the amount of metabolism and its distribution. Um, one of the things we're, we're struggling with is to try to find out currently techniques that will allow us to understand under what circumstances metabolic changes drive cognitive changes and cognitive changes pull up or drive down metabolic changes. 
And it looks as though there's a complicated loop in this process in which neural activity gets assessed. And that assessment sent, is sent down to the midbrain and brainstem, deep parts of the brain that say, okay, now let's shift metabolism of the cortex from where it was before to this new place. So that in effect, there's this complicated loop between neural activity and metabolism where neural activity is in one area is changing the metabolism in another area, which changes its neural activity, which changes the metabolism in another area, which changes its neural activity, and so on. Um, feeling, as I think about it, um, is first of all primate, primate, primary. Um, feeling is what it's all about. Every perception, every action is about feeling in this broad general sense. And feeling is about this relationship between the information that's being generated, the signals that are being generated, and the metabolism. Uh, and when there's a tension between the activity of neurons, neurons and their metabolism, the stronger that difference is, that dissonance is, the stronger the feeling. And so when, we, when something really startles us, for example, what we see is it drives up metabolism, drives up neural activity, and we have a strong feeling. Um, it rises to consciousness. Um, and that's because what's happening in this process is that a system is being driven to act, become active that wasn't active before. Think about this again in terms of self-organized processes. To get them started, you have to pump energy into them. Once they're going, they have a kind of inertia. Um, we talk about feeling that we really are focused on as emotions. Emotions have a kind of inertia. It takes a while to sort of gin up the energy, so to speak, to be focused on something or to stay focused. Um, and sometimes um, events can suddenly cause that energy to shift, cause energy to go from one part of the brain to somewhere else. And we experience that also as an emotion. We use the term motion here because it's got a kind of inertia. Emotions have a kind of inertia. They don't just go away and they don't just get ginned up suddenly, spontaneously. It takes effort. It takes energy, change of energy. This is, some, this is again why computation and cognition are radically different processes. What is your general take on the effort in neuroscience to identify uh, neural correlates of consciousness. So what I tried to do to some extent is to say, this is where we should be looking for neural correlates of consciousness. It's not in some place in the brain. It's not in some class of neurons that do it all. There is no homunculus there, but there is self. And remember that self is always this relationship between morphodynamic processes. When morphodynamic processes couple and support each other, um, there is a self, there's a locus. I think about the various parts of the brain as doing this, but if you think about the relationship between metabolism and neural activity, there are also two self-organizing tendencies. And they are playing boundary conditions on each other. What I just described is where neural activity can change the metabolic activity in another area of the brain, and which 
activity in that part of the brain can now change metabolism in a different part of the brain, which changes its neural activity, and so on and so forth. You get this complementary relationship in which each becomes the boundary conditions for the other. That's the nature of self. What we want to explain in consciousness is where I am. I have this feeling in philosophy, it's called qualia. You know, I have this quality of experience. Um, what I'm trying to say is that this is the neural correlate. It's not somewhere in the brain. It's not some neurons in the brain. It's not some particular kind of signal. It's this relationship between the life of neurons and the activity of neurons, between the energetics of neurons and the information of neurons, because the energetics and the information are entangled with each other. And it's that entanglement. And when that entanglement is driven to extremes, that we experience something. We say, ah, oh, I, I noticed that. I'm aware of that. So in that, that respect, there's neural correlates of consciousness. But, but if we think about those correlates in computational terms, we'll miss the locus. It's not somewhere in the brain. It's not some kind of a signal. It's this complicated relationship between the teleodynamic aspects of neural activity and its energetic base. When um, when we're thinking very hard, you know, if you're if you're reading a, an engaging book or you're solving math problems or you're playing chess or whatever it's a kind of mental efforts exercise we we experience it as being very effortful and obviously you know your your neurons are doing stuff and that their metabolism has to go up and down in very particular ways and yet uh, when we do these sort of effortful cognitive activities we don't really break into a sweat like we do when we're physically exercising is there some difference between uh, the metabolic effort required to do mental stuff versus move the body around or or is there is that a trivial difference? No, it's not a trivial difference at all. I mean, I think the main issue, it, this has to do, it's a very different problem in one respect. That is something that we call metabolic scope. Um, in my body, um, my muscles can persist on almost no oxygen. They can use glucose. I'm assuming lose glycogen um, to break, to get energy. Um, and I can break break this down with almost no oxygen. Um, so what we say is that at rest, what we call basal metabolism, it's metabolism measured when you're laying down, relaxed, not doing anything. That's the basal metabolism of my body. I get up and I start to run and work on a uh, a treadmill, for example, and suddenly my metabolism goes way up. It turns out that muscle cells have a huge scope that means the resting or basal metabolism of, of muscle cells is very, very low. It doesn't take much to keep them alive. But they can have a scope in which they can be doing tremendous amount of energy. Tremendous amount of energy can flow through them. Um, but in doing so, entropy is being generated. And that's dissipated in our bodies as heat. Um, so climbing the stairs or running on the treadmill, um, I've shoved my metabolic scope way high in all my muscle mass, um, producing huge amounts of flow through of this energy. Um, so 
I only have to go up a couple of flights of stairs before I'm sweating. In comparison, as you were just suggesting, here I am, I'm doing my, some exam, testing me, you know, to the limits. Um, I never break a sweat. We sometimes say that, well, gee, the nervous system uses so much energy compared to the rest of the body. And that's because the basal metabolism of the brain starts at a higher level. So the metabolic scope of neurons is very shallow, but it, because it starts at a very high level and can't be pushed much higher than that. So the metabolic scope is very narrow. The metabolic scope of muscles is huge. What that means about neurons is because neurons have to be constantly active, constantly metabolizing, constantly sending signals out, or they die. A neuron has to be constantly active. So its, it's baseline is very high. We recognize that it's maybe 10 times higher than, for example, most other tissues of the body. So we say that the basal metabolism of the nervous system is very high. It might make you think that brains are very expensive, but because they don't have a very large metabolic scope, it turns out that they're not so expensive. Um, I think there's a misnomer. We think about having big brains as a very expensive thing. It's actually not for the very reason you mentioned that you know climbing the stairs produces much more, demands much more energy and produces much more entropy. Um, but what this means is that shifting metabolism in this little bit, because neurons don't have a lot of tolerance above and below this level, it's harder. When you have to push something that is very resistant to being pushed, it takes a huge amount of metabolic shift to do that. And one of the things that we recognize in the brain is that we already over-metabolize. We're actually producing more oxygen and glucose than neurons need to just stay, stay stable. But to push them to go much, much faster, you have to do much more metabolic work. And so, in effect, that feeling of effort that you just mentioned, to do something, to initiate an activity, there's an effort. I think of that as literally about what it takes to rev up the neurons. You've got to pour more energy into the system to rev it up, to get the system to now produce a regularity, to produce a regular structure, an attractor, uh, a particular kind of musical um, result. It takes a lot more energy to do that. We, I think we experience the difficulty of doing that as effort, as mental effort. We feel it as effort. It's as we say it's as effortful as, you know, climbing the stairs. But it's a different kind of effort. You know, connecting some of your ideas. So, so earlier we talked about um, some of these negative definitions. So when something's about something, there are constraints that um, give you information. And having information means a reduction in uncertainty. So there, there's many things that are ruled out. Um, from being true when you find out that something is true. Um, in the book, you wrote that a thought is about a possibility, and a possibility is something that doesn't yet exist and may never exist. It's as though a possible future is somehow influencing the present. So so what did you mean by that statement? So think about the thought itself, all the talk we've just had about brains. Um, what that says is that for every potential result 
say we want to produce. Um, I have a mental representation. There's normal thinking and normal conversation. That's what we talk about. I have a, I have an image of what I want to accomplish. Um, that image has to be maintained, of course. The question is, what kind of thing is it? As we've just described, it's got a structure and a pattern. But of course, it's not the same as the world out there. Um, on the other hand, it was probably generated on the basis of past experiences that have certain forms. And so its form, which is not the form of the world, but it's a parallel structure, a parallel pattern, um, is in that respect, um, something that is now driving neural activity. But notice that the form is the result of constraint. We've constrained neural activity, so it's not all kinds of activity. It's not dynamical chaos. It's a significantly limited activity in this local area. That constraint is what constrains our potential movement, why I don't do some things and do other things, which are consistent with bringing about that represented future. So in one sense, it's the absence of that thing in the world that I want to accomplish captured by the constraints, absences in the dynamics that is actually constraining my activities, selecting some and eliminating others, absences representing absences that cause absences in the expression of energy as it's distributed in my body, that therefore causes me to cause some things to happen, other things not to happen in the world. Um, so in one sense, the informational nature of that loop of causality from something in the world that doesn't yet exist, that I can represent by a pattern of activity, also the result of constraints, to constrain my activity, to constrain the way the world changes. Um, this is a series of constraints, a series of absences, a series of things being prevented. We like to think of information in the positive sense, but it's a variant of what you just described, and that is the reduction of degrees of freedom is also the reduction of uncertainty. Um, the reduction of things that could have happened that are now prevented from happening. That loop is a loop of dynamical mental causality. It's what we might call agency. But notice that agency is, in a sense, ultimately a loop of preventions, a loop of absences. And when we start to think about higher order uh, cognitive operations, you know, in the first discussion we had way back in episode 20 of the podcast, it was all about the development and evolution of language, which was tied up intimately with just the the general ability to think symbolically. And so, you know, when we start to think about things like the difference between um, basic sensory perceptions that are sort of constructed on an ongoing basis based based directly on the incoming sensory input to the brain through the eyes and the ears and, and the sense organs, how do those types of sensory representations differ from abstract representations or symbolic representations that are only present or predominantly present in, in humans and certain other species, but absent from other creatures that still have eyes and ears and nose and everything, but don't think at that symbolic level? Well, of course, that's one of the grand questions of neuroscience and of 
human evolution. Um, as our last conversation focused on that, I won't go into some of those features, but the main thing is to recognize that um, symbolic information um, has to be built up from other kinds of information. And the reason for that is that symbolic information like words, um, the sign vehicle, the sounds, the written characters have very little to do with what they represent. The question is, how can something that carries no link to what it represents actually carry representational information? And the answer to that is that it needs to be built up. You can't just start from the top. Um, yes, we can build a computer language from the top because the computer doesn't have to know what it means. But for you and I, what we have to do is we have to build up, as you say, from sensory experience, the correlations among sensory experiences and our motor activities, and recognize that there are certain regularities there that I can recapture in regularities between these things that are symbolic, that don't carry these features, but have regularities that relate them. So in one sense, you can think about a sentence as a kind of picture um, in which the relationships between the words using the logic of linguistics, of connectives, of subjects and verbs and arguments, um, that in effect, it's an icon or a picture of what it represents in which you've replaced all of the actual likenesses, all of the actual physical relationships with this, in a sense, substitutions that are only related to each other because we've agreed, if we're English speakers, that we're going to link them up to these other likenesses and other relations that we already have acquired in the world. So we build up this representational system for a very good reason. Because if the only way you can refer to things or share information about things is by having sign vehicles that are either like what they represent or are connected directly with what they rep represent, like correlated with or physically a consequence of or a, or a part of something. Um, that's a very limited capacity to represent. The only way to escape those constraints of representation is to offload those relationships onto sign vehicles, sounds, or characters that are not so constrained. But the only way to offload it is to build it up from those. So it requires that we have <coughs> lots of common experience. Lots of common experience. <coughs> Excuse me. Lots of, lots of common experience of using the words in certain contexts. The sounds are now correlated, but eventually when we really rec represent the world sim words symbolically, um, they no longer have to be physically correlated at the same time. But when I'm learning language, I'm learning it by being correlated. I use the same sound. So think about the problem of identifying, there's a classic story by a philosopher um, named Willard Van Orman Quine, who talks about um, coming to a native 
society in which someone points to a rabbit running by and says, Gavagai. Um, <clears throat> the question is, does Gavagai refer to rabbit, to brown furry object, to moving object, to animate object, to mammal, to what? How does the native figure this out? Now, what Quine was trying to say is that just pointing, what he called abstention, abstention, um, doesn't resolve it. That's a correlation. That's an index. It points to something. But if every time a horse goes by and you say Gavagai, and every time a person goes by and you say Gavagai, you've got a comparison of icons. An icon is like a picture, something that shares a common form. Well, it turns out that saying Gavagai again and again and again um, basically shares a common form. But in pointing to a horse and a person and a rabbit and a dog and a cat, but not a car, you're now forced to say, okay, if Gavagai is all similar, what's similar about all those things? When we learn a language, what we're doing is we're resolving that relationship taking the iconic relationships, the similarity relationships, mapping them to each other, seeing how they relate to each other, and then linking them together with these indexes, these pointing correlation relationships, and then finding out that we can now find an abstract relationship where I can now say that Gavagai, even though it is not directly correlated necessarily, doesn't show up at the same time, and it may be pointing to something different, like a rat. Um, I now have done enough of a job of figuring out what its reference would be so that now I can abstract it and use it abstractly. But as soon as I can use it abstractly, my representational capacities become huge because they're no longer limited by iconic or indexical relations. So the question is, um, how does it get produced in brains? The answer is it has to be produced the same way. We have to build it up from experience, from iconic sensory experiences, linking the sensory experiences of the word, the objects, um, and the uses and the contexts, remembering how they fit together. But once we build it up, we can sort of, so to speak, pull the ladder up after ourselves. We no longer need to have words always correlated with what they represent. And we can now guess by inference um, a new object that might be better called Gavagai. Uh, in this respect, we've in a sense made things more ambiguous because they're no longer neatly grounded in things in the world, but we've also gained all kinds of freedom to refer to things. Once we've done this, we can do something that no other species can do, which is get inside of each other's heads. I can be provided, providing ideas that will influence what you think or will piss you off or make, make you struggle to make sense of it. We can fall in love with each other because we, in a sense, occupy each other's thoughts. We share each other's thoughts. Two chimpanzees brought together for the first time can't share their histories can't say, this is what happened to me last week. Can't say, this is what I want and like. I can eventually, maybe these two chimpanzees can discover it by continually being correlated with each other, 
observing the similarities of activity of each other, but they can never get inside of each other's heads. We human beings live in this world all the time. We live in a world that no other species can live in, which means that we are basically, this, the thoughts I'm sharing with you now are thoughts that also were built up from thoughts that other people had. Aristotle has influenced how I think. Wittgenstein has influenced how I think. Um, other neuroscientists have influenced how I think. And my experiences have done this. But some of that can be shared. I've shared it from them. I'm sharing it with you. And we will continue to have these kinds of interactions. The very nature of human existence is this kind of shared cognition, which means to some extent, cognition is not just in my own head. My thoughts are actually something that's distributed, are actually something that's part of a larger whole. Um, I'm a kind of endosymbiont in this symbolic culture. Do you th so, you know, humans have this pretty unique capacity to live in this uh, world of abstraction built up from, from our sensory experience and in our ability to index things in the world by seeing things and, and pointing to things and interacting with things. And as you said, uh, once we uh, unlock uh, the ability to do the abstraction part of this, it unlocks a lot for us because now we can refer to our history. We can talk about things in hypothetical terms. Um, I can know something that you're talking about, even though the thing we're talking about is not directly in our, our field of vision and so on and so forth. Is is there also another side to this that's problematic? Is this maybe also the source of a lot of our uh, mental health issues and other things and why, um, you know, if you talk to anyone who's into meditation or things like that, it's all about uh, letting, letting the thinking and the abstraction part wind down and, and really kind of getting to uh, the direct sensory experience or what you might call the, the vegetative sort of awareness part of things. I, I think that's right. I think one way we can talk about this is that um, I like to think about this, what, what sometimes in philosophy has been called intersubjectivity. That is, you know, my emotions, I can share my emotions with you, my excitement about certain ideas um, and possibly get you excited about it or get you angry about it. Um, uh, we hold each other responsible for doing simulations of what, it's, what each other's experiences are. So our morality is in part because we're holding each other responsible for producing positive and negative experiences in each other. Um, we couldn't do that. And one of the reasons we don't hold other animals morally responsible for what they do is we realize they can't do that. They can't generate a simulation of how my activities are affecting your emotions, whether it's a positive or negative influence. Um, that's a really powerful feature. And it's, of course, restructured all of human society. And we now have rules about morality and so on, built upon this capacity of sort of being in each other's heads. On the other hand, because of this, we also know how to harm each other. We know how to make somebody unhappy or scared or worried, um, to threaten, to take advantage of this capacity. We often think about evil activity as using this great gift we have against itself. The people who are most evil are those, are not just somebody who's stupidly doing something that harms somebody else. It's somebody who, by calculation, 
is taking advantage of somebody, a torturer, uh, somebody who's kidnapped somebody and is extracting money uh, out of threat to harm of somebody that you are linked with mentally and emotionally. Um, it's the source of both what's noble about humans and what's most horrible about humans that we don't find in other species. Um, I think of this as sort of what happens in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are discovering each other. So they, they for example, um, they cover their genitals. Um, why? Because now they know that the other person can see them. They have a simulation of what it's like to be seen. I think we have an intuitive understanding of this kind of knowledge. Uh, but of course, what that means is that symbolic material, virtual possibilities, abstractions can be upsetting, can be disturbing, possibilities. And I think because of this, um, we also have other aspects that are unique to us. I think we have unique kinds of emotions that are the result of how symbols tweak our emotions. Um, we can be ecstatic by looking at a particular piece of artwork or listening to a piece of music, just form. Um, we can be um, humored by twists of logic. Um, the experience of humor, that's an emotion. It's an emotion that's produced by this sort of twist of logic. And yet it's a remarkably powerful experience. One of the things that symbols have done is that they have made it possible to juxtapose various complex emotions that most normal species have separate. They occur separately. My favorite one of these is nostalgia. <laughs> nostalgia is an emotion about the present about the absence of the past, about something that was present in the past, that was positive, that's not here in the present, that's not so positive. But I'm juxtaposing these two emotional experiences that influence each other, that are in tension with each other, that I'm experiencing at the same time. I'm experiencing the past, I'm experiencing the present, I'm experiencing the dissonance that the fact that one is not here, one is present, it's an experience of an absence. In some sense, our emotions are more complex than other species, precisely because we're capable of this kind of representation. But that almost certainly means that our emotional systems are also capable of doing things, getting into emotional states that probably are unhealthy as well. I also think that just the develop the evolution of brains to make this kind of cognition possible has also probably destabilized some of these emotional systems. So they're much more sensitive. I think that there's some basic physiological stories happening here. For example, I think that the forebrain of humans, uh, including particularly the cerebral cortex, has expanded at the expense of the midbrain and brainstem. Systems that are regulating the metabolism and the emotions, the feelings that can exist in the forebrain. I think that that has created a, a, an, an imbalance. It was a critical imbalance that made symbolic capacities possible, capacities which can tweak our, and distort our emotions. But the very process of evolution generating a brain that can do that 
I think has also made those emotional systems much less stable, much more likely to be perturbed to the point that they become inescapably dis- distorted. So, you know, going back to the concept of sentience and linking this to evolution, and eventually I want to ask you about things like cultural evolution and um, processes that are involving many minds simultaneously rather than just one brain at a time. You, know, you wrote in the book that sentience is not just a product of biological evolution, but in many respects, a microevolutionary process and action. The experience of being sentient is what it feels like to be evolution. What, what exactly did you mean by that? So that in a sense, what we think about evolution, and I, and I and I want to say that I want to enlarge this, not just to evolution, but you might say the evo-devo perspective. What I've been talking about is cognition is a little bit also like embryogenesis. Um, a thought, even a perception, I think has to differentiate. Um, and in this respect, um, being sentient, being sentient is being is experiencing that differentiation process. Growth is not unpainful. Growth does not happen without effort. Um, That's part of the process. Um, And one of the things that's going on in the course of embryogenesis is that you have to generate something. Um, In evolution, we've actually, I think, ignored a good half of the evolutionary story. It's beginning to come back into into perspective with respect to the evo-devo side of things. but the question is, you know, how does novelty get generated in evolution? We've up to this point from the neo-Darwinian perspective, say, well, it's just sort of, you know, genetic damage. Uh, you get mutations, and those things get some things get selected, and some things get eliminated. Um, it turns out it's not that simple. Life is always about generating novelty, about generating more of itself, about generating excess. Um, Evo Devo is about generating form. Um, a philosopher named Stan Self um, came up with this, I, I think, a really cute phrase to describe this. He says, natural selection, um, how does he say it? Let me think of this. That selection, natural selection eliminates, I'm not, I'm not going to get it right. Um, that, let me think before I say it again. Um, I've lost it. I'm sorry. I don't know the quote, but but I think it sounds like what you're starting to say is you know natural selection is selecting from diversity that's already been pre-generated. It's it's eliminating possibilities that were created, but it's not doing the the creation side of this. That's right. We normally we normally want to put a lot more into the natural selection process than it's actually doing. Um, and the quote is something like this: that natural selection um, removes. What self-organization adds. Um, that self-organization generates regularity, generates form. Um, and once you've got a lot of alternative forms, not just noise, but forms, regularities, constraints, now some constraints are better than others for linking the system and maintaining it. Um, think about thought processes now. If thought processes are generating are morphodynamic are generating form generating music so to speak um one of the things that perception is doing 
is selecting on those forms that are more cons most consistent with what's coming in. Eliminating those self-organizing processes, those melodies that are not consistent with what's coming in, and therefore selecting. The evolutionary process is that self-organization is generating form, generating structure at various levels of differentiation. Initially, a thought is very undifferentiated. And what we do as we take that undifferentiated thought and begin to select what aspects of it are relevant and what not. And that helps generate the next level. In fact, part of my analysis of nervous system structure, and now it's become, it turns out to be a major way that people talk about the nervous system, sometimes called um, uh, uh, predictive coding um, or generating something that predicts and then natural selection, in this case, not natural selection, but sensory selection says, okay, those predictions are wrong. These predictions are right. Let's put it, push it forward. I think in order to differentiate something, you have to generate form and then select on the forms that are generated. This is happening also in development. We generate tissues and then we select from them. The brain is in particular a situation in which this occurs. We generate regular form that's fairly generic in early embryogenesis of the brain. And then we allow the signals being passed around in the brain to select some connections and eliminate other connections. That the development of brains goes through a kind of microevolutionary process. It's not just embryological, but it's also doing selection. It's generating more possible connections and then constraining those. Sometimes this has been likened to Darwinian processes. Um, Gerald Edelman uh, called this neural Darwinism. Um, but I think this is a general process in which brains generate the complexity they have in part the way evolution does on the fly, generating form, selecting on that form, generating new form from that, selecting on that form, and so on. And in this process, information is generated on the fly. We remember a few minutes ago, we were talking about um, how the genetic information to build mouse brains and the genetic information necessarily to build human brains, it's basically of the same order of magnitude. In fact, almost the same genes. What that means is to have a brain with much more complexity like ours is that that information had to have been generated on the fly during development. And it's generated in this evolution-like process. But that evolutionary process involves self-organizing processes, generating complexity that are selected against. And in that process, that always has to be generated as a teleodynamic process in which we're, we've got a stable self that gets perturbed that has to restabilize itself with respect to new inputs, which has to restabilize itself with respect to new inputs. Now, I think that if we actually wanted to explain how a particular mental process takes place, I think the best place to look is how that part of the brain developed. What's the dynamics that developed the visual system? What's being selected? How's it working? Because neurons don't suddenly become adult and say, okay, now I'm not going to do what I did when I was developing. I'm going to now start doing 
real computing. I think that everything that we do currently is a variant of what's going on in developing these same structures. That cognition recapitulates the development of the brain in this respect. We shouldn't expect that the, quote, computation that's going on in an area is different in adults than it was in the process of building that structure. It's just that it's now been shifted, not from major connectional changes, but from strengthening and weakening synapses. Um, it's the same process. It's not changed. So again, my suggestion for good neuroscience is if you want to know how a part of the brain works, first, understanding how it developed. What was the dynamics of its development? Interesting. You're uh you know, for the Evo Devo nerds out there, um, there's that old idea from the 19th century that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. What you're basically saying is cognition recapitulates ontogeny, neural ontogeny yes. or something. Exactly what I'm saying. I think you said it exactly right. Yeah. And there is um, some interesting no, literature. I don't think, Go ahead. I, I, what I was going to say is I think that the idea um, that Heron's heckled Heckel put together this, this recapitulation idea in terms of evolution turns out not to be the case. Um, and I'm not suggesting by this that um, we redo developments in every thought. It's that the dynamics of the process is going to be similar. The dynamics of the process is a differentiation process. And in that respect, it's a recapitulation. It's not really doing development, but it's it's got a similar dynamic. Yeah, but, uh, but the dynamic that's present in the adult, you're saying, was also present during development. It was just one of the many things that were present that was was selected for because it, you know, it, it matched the sensory inputs coming in or whatever. Right, right. When you so I think the subtitle of the book is something like How Mind Emerged from Matter. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of science in the book, but also a lot of philosophy. And of course, you know, if you're a student of the philosophy of mind, you know, the, the old, you know, the, the, the main, uh, uh, bifurcation point between people is, you know, whether or not they are monists who believe there's sort of one thing, um, or dualists who believe there's two kinds of things, mind and matter. And so, so your subtitle is how mind emerged from matter. So did the universe once exist in a state where there was no consciousness at all? And this emerged only after material substrates came to be patterned specific ways. Do you, do you actually think, uh, you know, there's, there's one thing and mind does come out of matter rather than being something completely uh, different. So again, think about where we started. Um, we started by recognizing the transition to life was not new kinds of matter, not new kinds of energy, but new kinds of absence, new kinds of constraint, new relationships in which constraints are related to other constraints. So what I'm saying, when mind emerges from matter, mind has to be understood in terms of these constraints, the absences. One of the things about the dualist perspective, that there's mind stuff and material stuff, is that they're both kinds of stuff. What this perspective is saying, no, there's one kind of stuff, and then there's the constraints on that stuff. There's that which is present and that which is absent. But the absence 
is a critical part of what's present. No material is everywhere all at once at every time. It's constrained. That is, it's in some places and not others. The shape of something has to do with the fact that there are places in space where it's not there. It's absent. Every presence has to be understood as being associated with something absent. So mind emerges from that space that is not filled with stuff. So that the Cartesian story, which has two kinds of stuff, mind stuff and material stuff, extended stuff and abstract stuff, has to be rethought monistically, but it's a monism that takes absence seriously. Hence the title of the book, Incomplete Nature. If we think of nature as only made up of material or matter and energy, we've missed something absolutely. And we've missed something that's equally part of the universe. All the constraints. Things are not everywhere, every when. Things are always constrained. And they're always constrained in different ways. And constraints can be added or subtracted. The stuff can't be. So that's how mind can emerge from matter. It's not that it's not that it comes out of matter. The absences were always there. But the absence relationships have become more complex, always embodied in matter. But if you think about it, absences or constraints are always negatively embodied. We just have to recognize that the universe has negative and positive aspects. The stuff that's there and this and where the stuff isn't. So mind is always there in one sense, but mind is not there in another sense. Because mind is a particular relationship among absent relationships. It's just that the potential was always there. And is this sort of a negative definition? Um, why it just seems intuitively like these two realms are completely and utterly separated? Because they are, in one sense. They're separated, and yet they're, they necessarily have to be together. You can't have constraints of nothing. And you can't have something that isn't somehow constrained. They have to be there. They're necessarily two aspects of everything in the world. And yet what we tend to do, not a surprise, because we manipulate things with our hands and we make things, we tend to focus on the stuff that's there and ignore the stuff that's prevented, the stuff that doesn't happen. It just I think it's just a bias that we have, and it's a bias that's part of language as well, if you think about it. Um, but it's not a world in which there's this abstract world of abstract stuff, and there's physical stuff. It's one world, but because absences can be iterated in relation, in relation to each other in more and more complex ways, it's that part of the world that can, can grow, can expand, can complexify. And as it complexifies, of course, the matter that embodies it complexifies. 
So evolution is possible. Now, there's a deep metaphysical feature here as well, is it tells us about, to some extent, the nature of time itself. Time is about the incompleteness of things. There is never a way that you can complete this. The configurations of matter, the configurations that exist now, are always incomplete. Time is the essential incompleteness of the world. But because of this, emergence is possible. So I, I actually think that there's a, there's a hidden double entendre in the title. And that's because it basically says the universe is Gerdelian in terms of Gerdel's incompleteness proof. As there's something about the circularity of causality that we've been talking about, the necessary relationships between constraints and that which is constrained, that, in a sense, has this kind of circular undermining character in which, in which what is present now undermines itself so that it can't be this way in the next instant. The world is, in a sense, fundamentally incomplete. Therefore, it can't stop. It can't be just now. It can't be finished. Our nature, because we are part of this, is also fundamentally incomplete. We're constantly in the process of trying to complete ourselves as well as trying to repair ourselves, trying to enlarge and expand ourselves. So I, I think of the title. I meant the title to have these sort of hidden um, multiple meanings that we're incomplete our very nature is incomplete um, the very nature of the universe is incomplete it's the reason we couldn't develop a complete formalism a complete abstraction in mathematics because of this interesting self-undermining nature of causality so when I say incomplete nature I mean it Nature is fundamentally incomplete. Our nature is fundamentally incomplete. And that's why evolution is possible. That's why consciousness is possible. Well, um, I definitely want to thank you for your time. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about this because I've read this book a couple of times. It's a challenging but very interesting book. Um, and so I recommend it to anyone who's who's interested in, in this general realm of you know what the mind is and where it comes from and, and what its relationship to its material substrates are. Are you working on anything new that might be coming out in the near future? And, and if so, what's that all about? Good. I, I'm just about two-thirds of the way through a book that's titled Falling Up, Inverse Darwinism and Life's Complexity Ratchet. Now, each of these pieces needs to be unpacked a little bit. Falling up is about the fact that things are beginning to become more and more complex in the living world. But not because of work, not because of forcing them to be more complex. I think the increase of complexity happens spontaneously. I can't, I think that the way life works is it's inevitable. Natural selection doesn't necessarily say that things should get more complex. Natural selection says, okay, stuff gets produced and gets selected and gets fitted to the world. Um, why does it get more complex? 
Stephen Gould said, well, no, you know, just by random walk, by a drunkard's walk, he called it. Um, things might tend to walk into increased complexity, but life is not going to get more simple in the simplest life. But it can always get more complex. So that maybe just kind of an entropy-like, an increase of entropy-like logic produces complexity. This led me to think about something else, which I now call inverse Darwinism. That inverse Darwinism is what drives complexity. Now, this is not to say Darwinism is wrong, or this is not an answer to Darwinism that says Darwinism is wrong. This is about recognizing that something about the Darwinian story also has a complement. You might think about it like we were talking about these complements of self-organizing processes that produce teleodynamic processes. We've always been thinking in the neo-Darwinian world that the complement to selection was random variation, was a generation of mutations, a generation of genetic variation, of recombination. My focus on Evo Devo over these last few decades and thinking about the developmental process, particularly development of brains, has made me realize that, in effect, that's too simple. That part of the story was not complex enough. Let me give you an example. Um, we've known since the 1960s and 70s, and in fact, some early evidence before this even, that genes can get duplicated by chance. A gene can be copied and plugged in right next to itself. So now you have a redundant copy. One of the things that happens if you have a redundant copy is that if by chance, by error, one of those copies picks up a mutation that makes it not work so well, there's no loss because it's redundant. You've got a redundant copy here. But if that change changes it slightly so it doesn't do the original function quite like the first one, um, it's a change in what you might say nearby that function space that the first one had. But that means that some of what that first one was doing might be done slightly better or differently by this copy. Now that means that the first gene could actually lose some of its capacity because now it's redundantly maintained. What this says is that if, if things are produced redundantly in living processes, you've got the capacity to allow each of the redundant parts to degenerate a little bit. And if they degenerate, they can also degenerate in ways that complement each other. Um, we've got a lot of examples of this. One of the first ones that bothered me had to do with the fact that, that we primates, particularly the monkeys and apes, have to eat foods with ascorbic acid, vitamin C in it. If we don't, we get sick and die. In fact, roughly half of Magellan's crew died of scurvy as these circle the world because they weren't getting vitamin C. Our bodies need this antioxidant. All monkeys and apes need that antioxidant in their diet. Dogs and cats don't. In fact, almost all other mammals make their own ascorbic acid. In the 1990s, some Japanese researchers actually found the gene in the rat's genome that produces an enzyme that modifies glucose so it becomes ascorbic acid. 
there's a gene in most mammals that plays the role in producing ascorbic acid. Well, they took the sequence and they looked for this sequence in other species. They found it in lots of other species. They also found it in us, but it's full of noise. It's a what we call a pseudogene now. In fact, there's a frame shift mutation early in primate evolution so that no other monkeys and apes can produce a working gene to produce ascorbic acid. As a result, we monkeys and apes have to eat it to get it. Ascorbic acid is still essential. It turns out that this began to mutate and lose its functionality about the time we think that primates began to eat fruit in large amounts. They had redundancy. This function was now being reproduced redundantly. Now, if something went wrong with that gene, but you're eating fruit and everybody's eating fruit, the consequences are not going to be too serious. But as it begins to degrade further and further, now you become addicted to fruit. You need vitamin C. Um, what's happened is that as a result, a number of other things changed. Because vitamin C is not going to be always available, I'm going to be competing with birds for fruit. Maybe there needs to be other things that happen. So maybe I have to develop a desire to want those flavors. So let's change some you know, olfactory systems. Let's change some taste receptors so that sour and sweet become much more important. So they actually become positive stimulation. Um, let's change color vision. Most mammals are dichromats. They don't see all the diverse colors that we primates see. But somewhere just after this process, and roughly a few million years, maybe tens of million years after this process began, um, primates had a, a gene duplication, like I was just talking about, in which there was a duplication of one of the rhodopsin genes, one of the genes that does color reception in the retina. And the what we call the middle wavelength gene that would have picked up sort of green-like stuff, duplicated, and the duplicate began to change. It acquired mutations that lost some of its sensitivity. So it became less sensitive, but it also became more sensitive to the lower frequencies and less sensitive to the higher frequencies. And as a result, the gene, the, the original gene became more sensitive to the higher frequencies. The lower frequencies, longer wavelengths, of course, are in the red zone. Now we have three color vision, and we can distinguish all of these color changes. One of the major color changes, of course, that fruit goes through is changing from green to red when it becomes ripe, when it becomes edible. Um, primates were selected to figure this out. Birds have always had this capability. Most mammals do not have this capability because mammals evolved from nocturnal creatures before the dinosaurs, in which they needed broadly tuned color vision. So they could see lots of light, take in lots of light in the dark. Whereas to see a narrow band of color, you're only taking in a little bit of the light that comes to you. But if you're foraging for fruit in daylight, this can now be an advantage. So here we have a situation where one kind of redundancy, the redundancy of something outside the body, allowed degradation of something inside the body and made us more complex because now we have more complex vision, more complex taste, 
In fact, more complex metabolism to deal with dietary vitamin C instead of endogenously produced vitamin C. We became more complex because we lost some function. But that complexity was generated by duplicating things, duplicating this visual gene, duplicating some of the taste receptors and allowing them to modify and degrade, falling up. The reason I've used this title is because degradation happens spontaneously. That's the second law of thermodynamics. That's the increase of entropy. It's curious that this that duplication has made degradation possible, which makes complementation possible, which makes increased complexity possible. So that complexity, the increase in complexity, is driven by the second law of thermodynamics. It's driven by degradation of function. But degradation only works if you're producing excess, if, if you've got duplicates. Well, everything about life is duplicating things, making excess, multiplying our body cells to grow, multiplying babies with slightly different variant features. Life is about multiplication and therefore about producing redundancy. So in one sense, I see why I call this inverse Darwinism. There are three major steps in the Darwinian story. There's duplication, reproduction, multiplication of babies that carry similar traits. There's variation in that process, which is a degradation so that it's not perfect. It's a degraded replication and duplication. The third part of the Darwinian story is Malthus. That is that we overproduce with respect to how many resources are available. We overproduce variety, some of which will be better suited to that world and some not, and therefore selection ensues. And we get better fitting to that world as a result. That's the Darwinian story. But now let's think about the other side of it. The inverse, the, what makes it the inverse of Darwinism? Cells duplicated, genes are duplicated. That duplication is susceptible to degradation by the second law of thermodynamics. There's degradation. But now the duplicates exist and they're redundant of each other. They're not competing with each other. Inside the body, they're both producing something. And sexual recombination allows us to sort of shuffle them around in different ways, to mix and match. It's a way to discover new synergies. What this says is that it's the Malthusian part that's inverted. It's not that there's not enough resources for everybody to go around, but there's actually surplus. You can play around. It's the play side of evolution, not the work side of evolution. So what that says is that inverse Darwinism is the other half of Darwinism. It's the complementary side of Darwinism. It works the same way. It's just that one is Malthusian and one is not. They're inverse of each other, but it's the self-organizing processes. It's the recombination, the synergizing component that provides natural selection with the raw materials to select. What we've not realized is how complex those processes are at the metabolic level, at the genetic level, 
um, at the epigenetic level, at the developmental level, all of these are processes that are inverse Darwinian processes. And I think that it's also a way to think about how brains work. So my next book, again, Falling Up, Inverse Darwinism and Life's Complexity Ratchet. It's a ratchet because once you get this complexity, you can't go back. Once you've lost the ability to prove vitamin C yourself, you can't stop eating it. You're addicted. Once you get more complex, you can't get simpler. It's really costly to get simpler. All right. Well, with that, Terrence, I want to thank you for your time um, and thank you for your work. So Symbolic Species and Incomplete Nature, two of the two of the most thought-provoking books I've ever read. So those come highly recommended. Obviously, this episode was mostly about Incomplete Nature. Episode 20, which featured Terrence, was mostly about the other book, Symbolic Species. And I look forward to uh, reading the new one when it's finished. New episode coming. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you. This episode is supported in part by The Amino Company. They specialize in making science-backed amino acid products that you can mix into any drink. Their products contain a mixture of essential amino acids, the building blocks of proteins in the body, as well as other nutrients including minerals like iron and electrolytes like potassium. Your body is constantly repairing damage and your muscles and tissues need the right mix of amino acids and nutrients to do this effectively. One thing I like about AminoCo is they actually conduct clinical trials to determine what their products really do. They have a variety of formulations and engineered for different purposes, and my personal favorite is one called Heal, which has been shown to be three times more efficient at triggering muscle growth and repair than other protein sources. It helps maintain healthy inflammation levels and preserve muscle mass during periods of inactivity. I mix this product into the water bottle I bring to the gym and consume it before, during, and after my workouts, and I have felt a noticeable difference in my performance during those workouts and my recovery times from soreness and fatigue afterwards. Their products are keto-friendly, soy-free, vegetarian or vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, so they are compatible with almost any diet or lifestyle. You can support the podcast and try Heal or any of their other products by using the discount code MIND when you visit aminoco.com slash mind. You will get 30% off your purchase. If you work out regularly or do intensive exercise, I recommend trying AminoCo's products. I get a lot of companies reaching out to me about advertising and I only end up using and liking a small percentage of the products that I see. So check out aminoco.com slash mind and use the code MIND to try these products today for 30% off.